Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the letters to the people in Colossae. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And from the letter to the Galatians, in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ingus. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Vulnerable and loving God, as we show up to your presence, to your table today, we ask that you would rid us of a judgmental spirit. We ask that you would allow us to see ourselves and others with the dignity in which you have created us. But Lord, do not let it stop in your church. Do not let it stop in your sanctuary. But may we move through this world with a vision, with a vision for people of how you see them, beautifully and wonderfully made created in your image. Lord, so often we turn people into numbers, communities into projects, vision into our own personal utopia. My prayer is that we would bring the fullness of our humanity to you and to each other. We would see its dignity and its belovedness. We would see its struggles, its griefs, and its joys. And as we join you, may we see the cultivation of a beloved community. May you use the words of a loved and broken man like me for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine for yourself maybe one of the best communities or teams that you've ever been a part of. What is it that made it unique? What is it that helped it gel together? What aspects of that community brought it and sustained it? For all of us, I think we sometimes experience this at some point in our lives. And then we begin to try to idealize it and just wonder, like, how can I get that back? How can I get my freshman year in college where we were all just kind of like together on the dorms and no one had phones and we were like, we were just there, you know, just present to one another. Uh, that wasn't true for me in any way, but I've heard stories of this so-called life. Whatever vision of community, of life together that just felt beautiful. Well, then we have what we all experience is we wake up that this whole thing is a little bit more messy than we imagined. 
What does it mean to be a beloved community? We've been using this word that is borrowed um, from philosopher that was then borrowed by Martin Luther King and Howard Truman, who was writing during the civil rights. We've been using this word as a way to describe some of what we believe God is calling us to in this church and in this world. But it just sounds so pretty. It sounds so nice. But what does it truly mean? How do we see it in the story of Scripture? How does the beloved community find its way in this world through the transforming power of God? Beloved community is a loyal commitment to a radical and unconditional love, to a social justice, and to an acknowledgement of the invaluable dignity of persons. And I want to talk about that today. That the creation of beloved community begins when we believe in the dignity of others and ourselves. It's a foundational point to the creation of what God is doing in this world, the creation of a beloved community. Now, here's the trap and the thing I worry the most personally as we, and as we think and as we move into this vision of beloved community. My greatest fear is, is that beloved community just becomes some type of new plan for a utopia. It's a vision which, you know, everything's just fine. There's no conflict. Every, all, everything's just working out. I don't know if you've ever tried to create your own utopia or been part of one in which they're trying to create it, but there's a moment in which when we are given the ability or the, to kind of create our utopia and make all things perfect, it goes wrong pretty quickly. T.S. Eliot once wrote, they constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. But the man that is will, will shadow the man that pretends to be. We run into the shadow of ourselves and of humanity, and we cannot ignore it. Christopher Hitchens once wrote this about utopia. The search for utopia or the end of history or classless society is ultimately futile and dangerous one. It involves it involves, if it does not necessitate, the sleep of reason. There is no escape from anxiety and struggle. Where I don't completely agree with him that it is a fruitile and danger, uh, that it's fruitile and that there's no ability for this, this world in which it is, we're living in a better place. If we ignore the anxiety and the struggle and the messiness of life in creating community, creating the vision that God has, if we avoid those things and turn away from them, we are never able to create the type of a beloved community that we see throughout Scripture. Scripture's vision of beloved community, that idea of shalom, is one that still actually is bringing peace, but there is still a struggle. There, there is an integration of life. There, there, is still, there is still so many parts of it that feel like conflict. Beloved community not, must not turn its head away from struggle, away from our shadow side from our central contradictions in life. What beloved community does is it seeks transformation through integration and divine healing, meaning a healing that comes from outside our reality, but also includes our reality. 
It comes outside. It's something from the outside transforming ourselves and our community and our world, this, in, this love and healing and forgiveness of God that comes from outside and we submit to. But it also includes, it includes our shadow, our suffering, our anxiety. This is why the act of incarnation is so important. That incarnation is not just some pie in the sky, but it integrates all the other parts of this life. The dirt, the mess, the relationship, the crucifixion, the struggle, the suffering of it all is included into this transformation. So the idea of beloved community in scripture in the early church in things like the civil rights movements or the movement of truth and reconciliation, the idea and the beauty of this beloved community is not some pie in the sky in which all conflict and struggle is just getting, is, is ridden. It is a place in which it is integrated into the wholeness of it all. One of the key foundations to this movement of beloved community through scripture and through the history one of the key and central things we see repeated again and again, the core value of it is this, that there is a dignity to people. There is a dignity to people, even though, even those that we may call our enemies. Martin Luther King said it this way, now is the time for our national policies, now is the time to lift our national policies from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. It becomes the foundation in which we gather together, in which no matter who walks through the door, who walks into the circle, who's standing on side the margins of it, that each individual holds a human dignity in which they have been granted and given by their creator. Now, I know that sounds beautiful because it is, but it's also messier than we could ever imagine. Jesus said, love your enemy. Not because it's just a good thing to do, but because he believed in the human dignity of both the oppressed and the oppressor. And that when those who are oppressors are doing so, they're losing their own dignity. They're losing their own dignity and they need to be rescued from it. It is for all. This is the countercultural revolutionary way and the struggle we see as the early church begins to form community. In the two passages we read, this, this is mind-blowing things that is happening during this time in history and during this church in which the separation of class and of people is clear. It's what brings order in so many ways. And the early church comes together and finds this new rooted identity in Christ and in the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. And they start to realize we can't live with the way in which we order it and we had inside and outside. And so it says, there is no more Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is, is all and is in all. There is no longer Jew or Greek, it says in Galatians. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ. Now, to say that the early church did this perfectly would be a complete lie. This is like something that comes from the outside. It transforms the way in which they are called to be in community, and then they're trying to figure it out. 
And if you turn the early church or the uh, New Testament into some ideal, you're, you're not reading the text itself. Read 1 Corinthians and you'll see the mess that's happening as they're trying to build community. But the theology and the foundation that is held to today is that there is this loss of all these ways in which we identify ourselves and we get to a core truth of who we are as beloved of God. Imagine trying to work this out on the ground. Like, not work it out in your head, but work it out in your relationships, in your power struggles, at your work, and your own family, in the church. It ain't easy, y'all. And it wasn't easy for the church, and it's not easy for us now. But it's right. The book of James, the letter of James, gives us an example of how the church is beginning to try to work this out and is addressing the mess of it all. James writes, my brothers and sisters, believers in our gracious, glorious Lord Jesus Christ must, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold rings and fine clothes. A poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him in whom you belong? But if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. That's a powerful image of a community trying to work this out. And it's a mess. We think that we're not showing favoritism. We're not giving power to certain people upon others. We're, not, we're saying, oh yeah, I see all people as equal, but the way in which we shape and form community seems to tell a different story often. We can see it in the ways in which we follow our own money or the money in our world. We continue to build, though more a little bit more not upright, we continue to build these structures and these systems which give a higher dignity to others and a lower dignity. Now, so many of you I know are passionate about this and know the struggle of what does it look like to actually live this out. At the ground base of that is this principle of God creating us in God's image, of our foundation being and our, our life being found and identity being found in Christ. The early church carried one gift into, carried one central gift into this creating and cultivating a beloved community. Again and again, it said, we find our identity in Christ. Who we are is in Christ. I am no longer this, defined by this, this, and this, but I am defined by my belovedness in Christ. It becomes who we are. It becomes how we see others. 
One writer put it this way, to be a Christian is to see Christ in all things. I don't know if that's the story of Christianity, but I know it's the one that we see in the scriptures here, that Christ is all and is in all. Can we begin to see people with that type of dignity? It's from this identity in Christ as the groundwork It's from this dignity of other people becomes the ground in which we begin to see ourselves, usually our worst enemy. We begin to see others. We begin to see no matter who's walking in the door, what they're dressed, what they're saying, or how they're acting, we know that there is such a deep level dignity to who they are, and we will treat them this way. It's from that groundwork that we also move in to a renewed moral grounding, a way in which we live together. You see, we need to let go of our old selves because we've been given worth now. And so we have to let go of the ways in which we were living out of this ego old self and live within the new self, one who is identified as beloved, has been forgiven in Christ, one who has been reconciled, one who is being made new. We need to put on this new self. There is an evolution of who we are as beings through the spirit that we are called into. I like to think of it this way. Um, It's probably not helpful in any way, but I like to think of it this way. Um, When we think about our old selves and new selves, that there's just this continue evolving who we are through the Spirit, is go back today and look at pictures of yourselves. I don't know, let's say 1991. Like, look at yourself in 1991. Look at the clothing you were wearing, the hair that you had going. You know, we kind of imagine ourselves just as we are right now, but you need to go back and see how you have evolved because it's pretty embarrassing for most of you. There's fanny packs. There's a whole thing going on. That's maybe 80s, but we're, we're not just the status. We're, we're an evolving creature. And we're called to continue to evolve, to shape, to be transformed. And this happens when we begin to see the thing that doesn't change is this identity at the core of who we are. But here's a challenge in this. We can't just throw out reason. We can't just like throw out structure completely, throw out reason. We can't just throw out a moral ethic, a way in which we are to interact with each other for the sake of radical inclusion. So sometimes I think in culture, we just want to say we're going to include all people. And so doing so, all rules and all things can go now. That's not what scripture, that's not what scripture is saying. And we also can't work from an ethic that is just from one single culture that says this is how we measure what a good person looks like. This is how they dress. This is how they act. These are the words they use. And now you've got to follow that ethic. Neither of those work. We can't just throw out everything and just say there's no morality or there's nothing. And we can't just say it needs to look exactly like this. We find our grounding in things that become a little bit simpler in the way they're described, but more complex as we think about applying them. James says it this way, that you are called to find, you find your grounding, you find your way of life through the royal law of love your neighbor as yourself. 
Do you hear that's not saying, so make sure that you wear cut-off jeans when you go to church on Sunday. It's not one idea of ethics, but it's, it's a broader, universal, and simpler, but more complex and challenging way in which we're called live. But there's still an ethical, moral way in which we love one another. We're still called to something. Paul says it in, when he talks about clothing yourself in the new self, clothed in gentleness, compassion, humility, forgiveness. There's a way in which we're supposed to live out this dignity that we have together. I experienced this a little bit when I, was, um, when I lived in Michigan for a few years. And um, on Sundays in this certain town in Michigan, which I loved, you weren't allowed to drink on Sundays. It was like an old law that they had. And, well, the law was you couldn't drink wine or beer on Sunday. Uh, I was a Bronco fan, so on Sunday morning, it wasn't, I didn't have it on cable TV, so we'd have to go to Applebee's to watch the Bronco game. But the rule, the cultural rules, you can't have beer or wine. And so then we soon discovered that what you, what you could do for some reason is just have whiskey. Um, which, right? Like, we're like, okay, so I guess it's 12 o'clock and I'll have a whiskey and watch the Bronco game. That's what happens when our moral rules become cultural rules. Versus moral rules and ethics that are that of what he's saying, this royal law of love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Pursue gentleness, compassion, humility, and forgiveness. When we understand that all hold dignity in this life because we are created in Christ, when we understand that all people hold this dignity, what we don't lose, though, is diversity. It doesn't just become one monoculture. It's still messy. Our stories, our perspectives still matter as we create beloved community. Sometimes what happens as we try to lift up the dignity of all people, we attempt to erase the diversity in the cultures of others. We just kind of see it as this human thing. Writer um, Howard Truman, who wrote during the Civil Rights and is a profound mystic, um, wrote, wrote, about, um, wrote about this idea of beloved community, and he says this. He envisioned beloved community as exemplifying a harmony that transcends all diversity. This is for all people, in which diversity finds its richness and significance. So what happens in beloved community, what happens as the poor and the rich share a similar status is not the erasing of diversity. It's a transcending of diversity, saying there is a core dignity to all. And because we see that, we begin to take in the richness and the beauty and the significance of our, each of our perspectives. It's a mess. I'm not going to lie. Communal life is a mess. But it's worth it. And God is central to the work of cultivating it in our world. Christina Cleveland once wrote, people, it's on the front of your worship guide, people can meet God within their own cultural context, but in order to follow God, we must cross into others' cultures because that's what Christ did in the incarnation and on the cross. 
We can hold a dignity for all people, but we also need to follow Christ in going into other cultures and understanding their world and their realm and their perspective and letting it influence ours. I've watched this mass of beloved community happen. I've seen it happening here in this community. Last night, we had a memorial service for our dear friend, Robert. It was beautiful. It was tough. It was messy. People from this community printed photos and brought them. They gathered flowers. They cooked food. They held crying babies. They shared honest and heartfelt stories. Some people knew the family, others didn't, but wanted to surround them. When I was walking around after, about five people stopped me and said, from outside this community said, hey, I want you to know I think you have a beautiful thing that's happening here in this community. And I said, I know. It's a privilege to be a part of it. I also know it's a mess. I know there's so much need for forgiveness. There's so much need to give grace to one another. There's so much need to hear the diverse stories that are in this room. But this is the work that God is doing and has been doing for a long time. The more you follow this Jesus in his revolutionary ways, the messier it gets. I'm sorry about that the more diverse it gets, the more complicated sometimes it gets. And so we find ourselves grounding in the simple things of loving our neighbor as ourselves, of following the ways of compassion, gentleness, and humility through the way of the Spirit. This was the big critique of Jesus, but of the religious leaders to Jesus. They watch Jesus' life and they're like, Hey, dude, we're starting to notice things I don't know if you're fully aware of, but you're hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, Roman soldiers, the poor, the rich. Women begin to be leading some things. There seems like there's a dance party breaking out. Someone drank too much at the party last night, and you're eating on the Sabbath. Like, I don't know if you see the mess that's happening. And Jesus just said, follow me. Beloved community, is a beautiful mess. It is not a pie-in-the-sky utopia. It is a beautiful mess in which the dignity of all is upheld, and in doing so, in holding up the dignity of others, our own soul is healed and renewed. May we begin to see Christ in all and for all. Let's pray together. Loving and gracious God, we bring the parts of our own story that we've covered and we've hidden with shame. We bring the parts of us that we just don't think are dignified enough. We bring the mess of our own life, our own soul, our own mind, and we offer it to you. Create in us a new heart, O Lord. Renew us with your spirit. Guide us in your revolutionary way. 
and teach us to see you, to see the beloved in all people. We don't know how to build the structures and the power. We don't know how to build the way in which we can live this out, but we know that you do. And we believe this is your vision for this world. So use us, work through us, transform us by your grace, your forgiveness, and the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray, amen.